Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free. It's a listener-supported show. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support the program, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. Hey, hello. How are you doing? I'm Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I have Sarah Kenzier back on the program today for a second time. She was here a couple of years ago when she was out in Los Angeles at the LA Times Festival of Books. She, uh, she came over and talked to me then when she was on tour for her book, The View from Flyover Country, which became a national bestseller. And now she has a new book out just this week. It's called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. It's available from Flatiron Books. And for my money, Sarah Kenzier is one of the most astute chroniclers of this era in American history. And she's one of the sharpest critics of the Trump administration uh, that you'll find. And for me, she's been an indispensable resource as I've tried to make sense of what is happening in this country and why. It's not just about pointing out all that Donald Trump does wrong and all that he does that harms people. It's about, like, how did we get into this mess? How did we get to this place that we're in right now? And in this book that Sarah is just about to uh, publish, Hiding in Plain Sight, she builds a framework for it, a very succinct and clear-eyed and powerful framework that explains a lot of the reasons for the mess we're in, puts it into historical context, and delivers the news. So uh, I'm just grateful to have a chance to talk with her. We did this one over the transom, but Sarah has her own podcast. It's an excellent show called Gaslit Nation. So she has her own microphone. It sounds like she was here. And uh, just a great conversation with an excellent writer. So without any further ado, here she is, folks. This is Sarah Kenzier. And her new book, out this week, is called Hiding in Plain Sight. 
where we are now is where I feared we would be. I mean, we've reached the moment that I've dreaded for so long, uh, you know, where we've had a rapidly consolidating aspiring autocracy since Trump was elected, um, especially since he was inaugurated. We had tools at our disposal uh, to try to fight back, you know, freedom of speech, uh, you know, which is now in question, freedom of assembly, which is now impossible, uh, the judiciary, which has been annihilated, Congress, which has been ineffective. And, you know, the the coronavirus on top of this, um, you know, of course, is going to be exploited by the administration and is being so to carry out their aims, uh, both to strengthen uh, dictatorial ambitions, but also just to chip away at what's left of our safety net, whether it's healthcare, uh, environmental policies, protection of vulnerable people like Native Americans. You're, you're seeing all of that in action. Uh, what strikes me about this moment is just this is such a cruel disease. You know, this is a disease where human touch is forbidden when we need it most. It's a disease that if you get it, uh, you will die alone. Um, and it just, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, the human toll is what uh, what gets to me, you know, I'm not different from anyone else in my fear of this and in my grief for this. Uh, but it does seem to be of a piece with the general grief of so much that we've lost in this country over the last four years, but just, you know, in general, increasingly uh, over my life. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel that way. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how, are you taking care of yourself? Like, how does, how does one stay sane amid all of this? And in particular, how does one stay sane when one has done such a thorough job of uh, studying Trump and his criminality and the brutality of this regime? Uh, do you have any advice? Do you have any tricks of the trade for people who are trying to engage with this material in an honest way, but also not be overwhelmed? Well, thank you for asking. I think you're, you're one of the first. Um, yeah, I, I'm. I've been better. Uh, you know, it's hard. It's it's hardest for me, I think, just as a parent, um, because my children are old enough to understand what a frightening situation this is, and so I'm um, I'm trying to comfort them, but also trying not to lie to them. Um, you know, of course, I'm I'm worried about money. I'm worried about my community. I'm worried about the elections. You know, all these sorts of things. Um, you know, one thing that has given me, I, I don't know if it's comfort as much as purpose in the last uh, four years, and of course before that, is just looking for the truth. You know, I do feel that our problems are not insurmountable. Like, I don't feel that we're doomed. I feel like we're in denial. We've been in denial as a country because there's been this mass refusal to confront, uh, you know, the worst elements of humanity and to confront what happens when those sorts of people grab power that, you know, laws will shatter and norms will break and people will not necessarily rise to the fore. You know, there's been this false search for heroes that I describe in the book. And it's just, you know, that that's made it worse, I think, the expectation that somebody is just going to swoop in and make things right or that things can, quote, go back to normal when normal itself was immensely flawed. Um, and, and this is a new level. Level, though I mean, this is an, literally an existential threat, and I don't know how it's going to play out, but I do know it's going to play out very badly with this administration in charge and with similar autocratic regimes across the world, uh, you know, linked with them and abusing their own citizens, whether it's Russia or Hungary or Israel or Brazil. Um, it's a global phenomenon, and we are all linked as citizens, as victims of uh, these types of brutal autocratic administrations. And so throughout this, you know, I'm continuing to write. I'm continuing uh, to look for 
the truth of, you know, what's been actually going on in our government, in our economy, in our society. Um, because I think that with that clarity comes a much better chance of moving forward. I do feel like corruption is at the root of so many of these issues. You know, that's why I was encouraged by Warren's campaign um, early on, because I think if you kind of, if you name names, if you dig deep, uh, it is possible to some degree to turn this around. Yeah, yeah. And I think like one of the things that I've been struggling with is especially as coronavirus has um, you know started to really spread and take lives and cause so much human suffering is to see poll numbers where Trump is even like bumping up a little bit or like like I just cannot believe that people are are still buying this and it can be so demoralizing to ponder things from the side of the electorate in particular from the right wing of the electorate like how in the world is he maintaining this? What what are I guess people are just watching Fox News. That's what they're doing. Honestly, I don't trust these polls and I don't trust polls in general. And part of the reason for that is that various people who worked for Trump admitted that they invented or manipulated the polls. Like Michael Cohen said that under testimony at a congressional hearing, like, yeah, we invented the poll numbers. And Trump relies on quantitative data. He, he uses, you know, and he's done this forever. He uses fake approval ratings, fake reports of how many people came to a rally or came to his inauguration because he needs needs to be able to say to the American public, it's okay to support me. It's okay to support my bigotry, my cruelty, my corruption. Other people are doing it too. So that's always been important for him. And I've been re- reluctant all along uh, to believe that his approval rating is as high as it is. I mean, it's there. He has a solid base. There are people who genuinely like him. I certainly don't think it's 40% of the country. Uh, and another thing that's kind of contributed to my view on this is, you know, I lived in a state that, uh, of course, to the election, voted overwhelmingly for Trump. I go to counties, or I used to back when I had the ability to move around, uh, you know, that where everybody voted for Trump. I have yet to, to meet any hardcore supporters, any MAGA hat wearers, anybody who has the kind of level of devotion that's often profiled in places like the New York Times. These are often people who voted uh, because of abortion or guns. They were like one, one issue voters. And they're disillusioned with the entire political system. You know, they might have hated Hillary so much that they voted for Trump, or they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and they voted for Trump. Like there isn't this feeling of a mass movement behind him. I feel like that's something that is built up to a very large amount uh, by the media, you know, who need to have some sort of rationale for how this is happening and don't want to look in the mirror. And I don't want to downplay the support he has because, you know, quite a few of his, his followers have vowed violence. You know, we've had the MAGA bomber, you know, running around threatening to kill various uh, Democratic representatives and, and media professionals and whatnot. It's a serious thing. But, you know, uh, when people are given a binary, that's the other thing in the media, you know, people don't trust the mass media. And so if somebody calls them up and says, you know, do you disapprove of Trump or do you approve of him? They may well say approve when the answer is somewhere in the middle or it's ambivalent or it's disillusioned because there's this feeling that if you approve, if you disapprove of Trump, then you must approve of the Democrats. And so many people hate the Democrats that they're just going to default into that. Yeah, sure. I approve of Trump mode, even if they're having hesitations. And I meet people like this all the time, people that just can't stand any of them. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, 
I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So what is it about the Democrats that people find so loathsome? These are people who love, um, you know, who are like NRA uh, supporters or members or people who are very much pro-life. Is that the kind of pe- person that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of typical, you know, GOP profile that I'll kind of run into in Missouri, although they're often not that fond of the GOP. It's just a matter of, of keeping those policies in play. But there's a sense of abandonment, you know, and I know I talked about this with you last time that you interviewed me, which was two years ago about, you know, how this whole sequence of events came about. There's a sense of profound abandonment by our officials, a sense of apathy to human suffering. And this is felt by everyone. It doesn't matter who you voted for. Uh, You know, it's certainly something I see people feel profoundly in black communities uh, in St. Louis, that they are just abandoned, let down, uh, you know, structural problems and discrimination that they've dealt with, you know, not just for decades, but honestly, for centuries here uh, are never addressed. And it's more that that kind of feeling has spread since the 2008 economic collapse. And it's led to incredible frustration. You know, people have been struggling to get by despite this kind of uh, narrative put forth by the media and by politicians that things are fine. Um, They've struggled with, I think, broken dreams for their own children, for younger members of their family. That's a very hard thing to contend to, you know, contend with. I think a lot of people can deal with their own lives shattering, but it's hard to look into a shattered future. And I think, honestly, that's the thing that people are struggling with right now in the midst of all this suffering and this uncertainty that's brought on by coronavirus is, you know, well, what what is the future? Like, where are we going? We know that we're going somewhere very bad economically. We're headed towards like 30 percent unemployment. We know we're going into unprecedented territory. At the same time, I think people realize, well, here's the potential to maybe fix some of these structural problems. You know, obviously, we we need universal health care. Obviously, we need to be paying workers that are, you know, driving, uh, like I want to say taxis, but they all got put out of business, Uber or Lyft or uh, working in grocery stores or working in pharmacies. They need to be paid a great deal more. I think this has kind of changed people's minds about some things. And if we only have the opportunity, we can perhaps make a more equitable, fair, uh, empathetic society, you know, from the lessons we've learned from this atrocity. But it's a long time coming. And it's very hard when you have an administration like Trump's in power that has no intention of leaving, even if they're voted out, they have no intention of leaving. Um, so, you know, it will definitely be an, an uphill fight uh, from weakened uh, citizens. And that's a that's a sad thing to, to have to say. 
Well, you've alluded to Missouri a couple of times, and I want to talk with you about it because it opens your book. And I think that um, in the way that you present it, you know, you make the case for Missouri being uh, kind of like ground zero for a lot of the problems that you just described and a lot of the disillusionment that you just described, because it didn't used to be this red. It used to be, or, you know, this Republican, it used to be a state that could go either way. And, you know, over the past couple of decades, that has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would still say it's a state that can go either way. And one of the examples I give in there in there is that in uh, 2018, we had all these ballot initiatives about raising the minimum wage, medical marijuana, protecting labor unions, you know, issues that are traditionally associated with progressives overwhelmingly passed. Overwhelmingly, the people of Missouri wanted these initiatives passed, but they voted in uh, GOP representatives who are now striking them down. And one of those initiatives, of course, was called Clean Missouri. And it was about getting rid of dirty money that was being given to these politicians. So you see this, this contrast, this difference between policies and personality. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with the pouring of dark money into campaigns with incredible propaganda, with gerrymandering, uh, with voter suppression. But, you know, we are in reality a purple state, you know, and we're a, a wounded state. And I think that a, a lot of that intense sense of frustration and disillusionment, you could see it here first uh, and it spread throughout the country. You know, every region is, is feeling this. Like, I'm very frustrated now with hearing this red state, blue state narrative coming from Trump in the middle of a public health crisis. Like, I think it's intensely dangerous because, yes, of course, he is uh, exhibiting overt malice towards, quote unquote, blue cities that he doesn't like or, you know, blue governors he doesn't like. He's also exhibiting abandonment toward the, quote, red states. And I'll tell you, from living here, you know, living through tornadoes and floods and natural disasters, we don't get aid from them. This idea that like he favors the red states somehow, I mean, it's a total myth. He hates all of us, you know, or just doesn't care. He doesn't care if the citizens of America die. And that's how I wish we would look at ourselves as, as, as fellow citizens instead of divided because, uh, you know, realistically, our lives um, are intertwined. But yeah, you know, Missouri was the bellwether state historically. It was the state you could look at to predict who would win a presidential election. And it's the state you could look at uh, to track American decline. And I felt it was important for this book, you know, which is not just about Trump, but about America, uh, to ground readers in a sense of American history. And I truly feel that Missouri is the most representative state, or at least the sort of state where, you know, East meets West and North meets South and all these different cultural and political moments collide, uh, often in a violent or dramatic way. It's a good way to tell people um, the history of America. And it's often a history that unfortunately tends to be ignored because because uh, so much media is conglomerated on the coasts. Yeah, no, I think one of the things I really love about your book is that you interweave, um, you know, personal history with American history, and you show how those two things are intertwined, but you also let readers get to know you, uh, you know, better. And it sort of explains how you came to be, uh, I think one of the sharpest voices and sharpest critics of uh, this administration over the past several years. So uh, can you talk just a little bit about how you wound up in Missouri? Because you started your career um, 
in you know on the coasts, uh, correct? You started at the New York Daily News and then eventually wound up in St. Louis. So can you can you talk a little bit about your personal history? Sure. Um, well, right after I graduated college, uh, when I was 21, my first job was at the New York Daily News, and that was in 2000. And I was mostly working on the website, which at that point was just a direct replication of the print edition. And this was when you know media was just booming. It was an incredible time for journalism. You know, salaries were relatively high. It was easy to get a job. I mean, it was just a, a completely different world. Um, and so I was there, you know, of course, during 9-11. And I write about that in the book. You know, I write about the personal experience of, of living through New York City at that time. I wrote about what Trump and his goon squad were doing. But I also write about how it changed um, media and it changed kind of the, the culture of media, you know, to a great extent. Um, at that point, you know, I, I basically was watching New York City change before my eyes. And uh, I've never completely been a city person. You know, like I like wide open spaces. I like to have a little more freedom of movement. I think I'm too impatient to live in a city. Um, but watching Bloomberg change things, uh, the expense going up, the salaries freezing, the feel, the feeling of incredible fear in the air. And that kind of fear, uh, you know, it leads to conformity. It leads to a loss of uh, creative thinking. Um, and just my interests were elsewhere. And so I, I became interested, of course, uh, in Central Asia because I was in part reading all these articles about the war in Afghanistan that had begun after 9-11. Um, and so I, at first I moved, gosh, let me think about this, moved to Istanbul for a year to teach English. Uh, that was, you know, kind of just to get the hell out of here for a while. Then I went to uh, IU and got a master's degree in Central Eurasian Studies with the intent of returning to journalism um, to cover those countries. Uh, but by the time I graduated, they had all become consolidated dictatorships. So that didn't seem like a good move. Um, and I also had gotten interested in anthropology while at Indiana University working as a research assistant for an anthropologist. And so I applied to a bunch of schools, uh, got a totally free ride at Washington University in St. Louis, and then moved here. Um, and then I kind of thought, well, maybe I'll go into academia then that industry collapsed. So that was like the second collapsing industry of my adult life before I was 30 was, you know, first uh, journalism, then academia. Um, and by the time I finished my PhD, I was back in journalism, but also had had a couple kids, uh, you know, didn't really want to leave because I did like St. Louis and I had become attached to my community here. But also I didn't have any money. So it's like, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And, and that's just the reality of life. And I feel like a lot of times, you know, people who are well known or writers, they like to put forth this image of their life as a series of uh, decisions that they they trained for, they prepared for, where there's so, no sort of, um, you know, a lack of money or a lack of funds. It's always just kind of one, you know, benevolent meeting or one great opportunity after another. And that's not been the story of my life. Like my, my life's just been about hustling. It's been about trying to stay on you know, solid financial ground, provide for my family, and also to tell the truth, um, you know, to, to study at one point authoritarian states abroad, and then study that when it came to my own country. And some of that is out of self-protection, because as we've all learned, it's terrible to learn to live under those kind of conditions. But yeah, uh, you know, it's been an unconventional life. Um, and I feel like it's best to just be honest about that, because I'm no more immune to these broad political and economic forces 
than anybody else. You know, I also uh, am contending with them. I'm also self-isolated at home. You know, in many ways, we're all in the same boat. And I feel like a lot of people like to put up a front, you know, and and pretend that they're somehow floating above it. I I don't think that's true. And I I think it's better to, to just be honest about that. I'd love to hear you say that because I just had uh, kind of like a neurotic spell when I was interviewing one of my recent guests uh, who's a literary agent named Monika Woods. And I was talking about how when I'm reading books, not necessarily, you know, uh, political books or uh, or journalistic, uh, you know, offerings or whatever, but just books in general, I often feel like whoever is writing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is too cool on the page. I'm like, well, where... <laughs> Like, where are the blemishes? You know, like, where's the struggle? I mean, sometimes it's there, but I always feel like there's some kind of artifice and maybe we're speaking to the same thing, you know, and I'm always, it always feels refreshing to me when I feel like I'm being spoken to uh, bluntly or truthfully. and, And yeah, I mean, like, I remember growing up, you know, I'd read about, I'd read biographies or memoirs of authors that I really liked. Uh, and then there'd be this point where they're like, and then I moved to New York or, you know, and then I jetted off to Paris where I lived and wrote for four months. And I just kept thinking, well, how the hell do you pay for that? I mean, that was just always like the the thing in my head is like, where'd you get the money? You know, I'd like to do that too. And that kind of information, you know, was always left out of those sorts of things. It's not really left out of mind you know, nor is the lack of money. Um, But especially, I I mean, I think anybody of my generation, you know, anyone who grew up, um, you know, was born during the Reagan era or after, like we haven't really had a a shot and the kind of folks who can do those sorts of things, like go off on some writing retreat, not having to work a regular job for a long period of time. I mean, sometimes people just get lucky, you know, and that's great. But a lot of times people are doing this based off of inherited wealth, family wealth. And so I write about that quite a bit and about nepotism and about the eradication of opportunity in so many professions that have great influence over American life, you know, journalism, politics, entertainment, and it leads to a broken society. It leads to a society where you get people like Ivanka Trump or Jared Kushner in the White House, or for that matter, Trump in the White House. Like there are so many layers of nepotism uh, involved in Trump's rise that it's frightening and the rest of us are just kind of on the outside of this and you know to some extent for me I feel like that's an advantage like I'm just living in Missouri you know and to some extent I can kind of investigate for example the Russian mafia uh, and people might not take it seriously at first when I'm doing it because it's just me but you know out I come with my book so come what may. Um, but I think a lot of people who really are embedded in those very elite uh, media circles and political circles, they wouldn't want to investigate in any of this or publicize any of it because it brings their world crashing down too. And it's a world that they advertise as being based on uh, merit, you know, a meritocracy, but it's a purchased meritocracy. And just to have that exposed, you know, putting aside the criminality and the corruption that often envelops it, that itself is humiliating. So I think that they tend to avoid that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I live in Los Angeles, so I see this in entertainment, like kind of in a passing way. Uh, it's like not even really questioned anymore that if you are the the offspring of a celebrity, you're sort of guaranteed a spot. It, it almost seems that way. Uh, maybe it's not quite, you know, that true, but it certainly, certainly seems like there's more than a grain of truth to it. And then you talk so eloquently, and I think uh, draw a very important line under... Um, the fact that, you know, unpaid internships 
and nepotism when it comes to uh, jobs in the media, you know, like coveted jobs, uh, you know, at uh, big magazines, however few of those there are left or at big newspapers or um, on television or on radio, I guess maybe not quite as much, but, you know, there is a system in place now that really uh, discriminates against somebody who might not, might not be of means, but is of merit. And like you say, that leads, that leads to uh, the breaking down of our society. It, it does terrible things to every industry that it touches because you have mediocrity rising to the top a lot of times. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they often, they'll cover up for each other when it reaches the point just beyond mediocrity and into rank criminality. And, you know, to name names for a bit, like I always think about Maggie Haberman at, at the New York Times, who ironically worked uh, at the New York Daily News when I was there as well. But, you know, she has that job because her father works at the New York Times. The New York Times itself is owned by a dynasty. Uh, she writes articles that uh, basically are puff pieces about Kushner and Ivanka propping up that kind of dynastic kleptocracy. Roger Stone sends little tweets to her, you know, congratulating her on her, her kid's birthday. I mean, I just keep thinking if my life's gotten to the point where Roger Stone knows when my children's birthdays are, like I'm running for the hills or just not anymore due to coronavirus. But, you know, it's just it's a sign of people don't um, they don't necessarily even recognize the uh, the d disgusting nature of the criminality and corruption in their midst because they were raised in it. They were brought up in it. It was, uh, you know, streamlined for them. It was whitewashed. Like I'm not even saying, you know, she's a terrible person or anything like that. I'm just saying she comes from uh, a very narrow elite world that most of us, thankfully, quite honestly, don't inhabit because I think if we inhabited it, we would lose our humanity. And so this has become uh, a profoundly dangerous situation. And, you know, we still have some means as like ordinary people to speak our minds, like through podcasts, through social media and whatnot. But it has become increasingly hard to make a living in these sorts of professions. And if you look back at times in our history uh, where where, you know, the people were able to have some leverage, able to have a voice, they were often times of a stable economy for middle class Americans, like going into the, the 60s and 70s, you know, until that began to change towards the late 70s. And nowadays, you know, protest, speaking out, not conforming, the toll you pay uh, until recently wasn't so much political, it, it was financial. It's, you know, losing those hours of your job, it's being punished, it's having, you know, everybody becoming a human brand, and then having your brand be devalued by daring to be different in your approach. Um, and so that's, that's a sad sign of the times. And I think that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with coronavirus, this is either going to become even more entrenched than it already is, or people will finally just have enough. I mean, I feel like we've been moving towards the latter direction recently, where so many ideas um, from four years ago, whether universal basic income or, you know, universal health care, etc., uh, that were thought of as so radical are now just recognized as, you know, hey, people are, are suffering, people are doing their best, and they're working hard, and they just cannot get by. And that is a loss to all of humanity. Like, there are so many talented people, there are so 
many people who have so much to offer and would be able to do so much if someone would just give them a chance. And we as a society are, are losing that. And what we're getting instead is is mediocrity and, and malice. Um, and who the hell wants to live in, in a world like that? I think increasingly people don't. So hopefully, you know, if we're going to have a reckoning, uh, which we are, uh, I hope it's a reckoning in that direction. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, one of the things that really struck me and kind of pissed me off was watching this $2 trillion stimulus package just get passed. And I'm glad that it did in a general way. Obviously, people need help and there needs to be some sort of government intervention to help stop the bleeding, or at least, you know, that's my general general feeling on it. Maybe you disagree. But um, $2 trillion. And yet, when we talk about things like universal health care, we're always told we can't afford it. Who's going to pay for it? Where's the money going to come from? And yet, in the blink of an eye, it seems like we came up with $2 trillion to to try to, uh, you know, I guess, not only help people, but maybe buoy Trump's uh, reelection chances so that he doesn't get buried in negative coverage or whatever. It just it blows my mind. Yeah, it's horrifying. I mean, and I agree that there did need to be a stimulus and, you know, it needed to go to some extent to companies. But we're seeing incredible neglect of average Americans who are getting $1,200 checks. We're seeing a lot of that money go to pump up the donors, you know, not just of the Republican Party, but of the Democrats as well, uh, and make sure that they still have the money to pump into the political system. So it's like a, you know, Ouroboros of, of bullshit. Like, I, it, it's it's grotesque to watch. And there are, you know, institutions in America that we need to preserve because we won't have the chance to preserve them again, like our national park system, our environmental regulations. They're already saying, oh, you know, we can't afford to keep those. We need to cut those. And most disturbingly to me, they want to get rid of the Postal Service. And the reason that this is bothering me is that I'm not confident we're going to have an election in November uh, with coronavirus. I think that there's both a, a pretext that the Trump folks would like to use to make sure that we can't vote, but also a legitimate legitimate public health threat. And the best remedy to that public health threat is voting by mail. And so I was not surprised at all to see that the administration is saying, oh, well, we can't afford the Postal Service anymore. So, you know, therefore, voting by mail is impossible. I'm like, of course, of course, they're doing that. So I encourage people to contact the representatives uh, to ensure that that doesn't happen. But that's the thing is... uh, you know, these guys, they think ahead. The, everyone likes to accuse the Trump side of incompetence, but it's studied malice. You know, these are guys who are very good at committing crime, at, um, you know, streamlining corruption, making it part of the mainstream uh, way that we do, you know, governmental business. And they're doing the same thing now. They think fast on their feet. And I don't know what the hell the Democrats are doing. Like, I don't know why they're not putting up, a, you know, kind of unified, powerful front against Against this because this may be our last chance, you know, to preserve our democracy. They seemed keenly aware of that uh, in the early months, you know, kind of leading up through the primaries, but have have lost their footing. But I'm like, you know, you got to do this now. If you're going to do like vote by mail, the time is now. It's not like to figure this out in October when suddenly the Postal Service disappears. Yeah, I mean, why? Like, what one of the things I wondered was when you have all this leverage, which presumably. The Democrats had when they got into this stimulus discussion because Trump had quite an incentive to to want to get it passed. He had a personal incentive, a personal benefit to be gained, which is the only thing that ever motivates him, uh, is why they didn't maximize their leverage more in those negotiations and say, yeah, we want vote by mail and we want expanded voter rights and protections and all the stuff that we need to make sure that we have free and fair elections. Like, it boggles my mind that we haven't 
seen a more aggressive push for these things, especially in moments of opportunity like this. Yeah, I felt the same way. Um, and it's been, you know, very disheartening to watch the Democrats just operate in general since they won the House back, um, you know, in 2019. In the beginning of the year, there were calls for impeachment. It was a very mainstream position. There were supposed to be hearings. They put out a list of 72 individuals that they wanted to have hearings for. I believe only one of those hearings was held, uh, Michael Cohen. After that, the rest were canceled. Uh, they didn't, you know, um, they, they were, were Pelosi, I really should specify, was refusing to impeach even after the Mueller report was released. Uh, she had to be coerced into doing it, even though something like 85 percent of Democrats uh, wanted these impeachment hearings to happen. They've refused uh, to hold this administration accountable. And there could be a number of reasons for this. And, you know, I think part of it is people are threatened. We know this. We know this from hearing directly from all the people who were threatened, who spoke out at the impeachment hearings. We know this from hearing from the threateners like Michael Cohen in the sole hearing where, you know, Trump's uh, operation as a mafia boss was actually directly addressed. What I don't understand is what looks to me like complicity uh, from some of the leading Democrats, from people like Pelosi and Schumer, who have the opportunity at certain times uh, to stop the Republicans, or at least to use the leverage they have to get a better deal for the American people and to bring uh, criminality to light. And they never take those opportunities. And there are others in the Democratic Party who are pushing quite hard, you know, like Warren or AOC. Um, so it's not a universal thing. You know, the Democrats are not like the Republicans. The Republicans are in lockstep, like they're never allowed to deviate from the standard crime cult line. The Democrats, there is more debate, and that's a good thing. But terrible leadership. I mean, I think we would be in a different place, honestly, as a country, if somebody besides Pelosi had been the Speaker of the House. And a lot of people give me shit for that. But, you know, I, I keep saying, well, like, justify any of these decisions. Like, were any of these right? All I kept hearing was this endless mantra of, oh, she's playing 3D chess, or she has a secret plan. And it reminded me a lot of those QAnon people who say the same thing about Trump. You know, they think that Trump is out there to clean up corruption and make America great again. And they're like, oh, just wait, just wait wait, just wait for the secret plan. And I feel like that's indicative of a broader American mindset where all our institutions have collapsed and it doesn't matter what side of the party line you're on. You're having, you're being encouraged to have blind faith in people who have not earned any of that faith. And you're, you know, being led to, I don't want to say to slaughter because quite now, you know, it's literal right now. Uh, you're being led into a bad situation by people who refuse to enforce accountability. And a lot of those folks share backers. They share donors. They're linked to the same corporations. You know, it's it's all kind of one uh, Borg-like entity. Um, and so that's a huge problem. And that's where people fear to tread because often their own careers, their own livelihoods are caught up in that as well. Uh, so there's a fear of, of speaking out and I don't know. It's just such a it's a very sad and, and challenging place to be. Like I think about when you interviewed me two years ago, how much has changed uh, and it's it's really gone downhill. I would love to uh, to be at that place, that kind of precipice of 2018, where, yes, things were very bad, but there is still um, you know more hope for the future in a concrete way. Steps we could take to try to get out of this before it became intractable. And I'm I'm not really sure, uh, you know. I mean, I I keep fighting anyway because what the hell else are you going to do? But it's uh, it would be nice to be back with that the level of leverage that we had back then. Well, one of the things that I that strikes me about your book is how hard you are on Robert Mueller, you know. And speaking of 3D chess and 
play like, blind faith in institutions and, and kind of this like rotating series of superheroes who are somehow going to save the Republic. You know, Mueller, I think, was a person so many of us, myself included, to be honest with you, like invested quite a lot of hope in thinking like, well, this is a guy who follows the letter of the law, who has been chasing down organized uh, crime kingpins throughout his career with some success and with a certain level of fearlessness that it would seem to take, you know, and an integrity that it would seem to take. And so, you know, I guess my hope was misplaced. Like he didn't like dr bring the hammer down the way that we needed him to, right? Yeah, he didn't do his job. And, you know, writing this book was a strange thing because I wrote it during the first half of 2019, basically, and then just, you know, did some edits throughout the summer, uh, which meant that I was writing it as the Mueller report first came out in the four of the Barr report, you know, which was a lie. It was a false summary of the Mueller report. Um, but then, you know, with Mueller himself, and then, of course, he came out and testified in July. And I, by that point, the book was done. But I was like, you know, just let me watch this. Let me see if he actually tells the truth this time, because then I'll be able to do a rewrite. Uh, and that would be a good thing. But unfortunately, he didn't. So there's just, uh, you know, a, a continued discussion of his refusal to answer the most basic questions. It, it's really cause for concern. And uh, Mueller's behavior opens up broader questions as to the nature of the FBI um, and the link of between the FBI and organized crime, particularly the Russian mafia. You know, Mueller uh, initially was an encouraging figure to me because of his 2011 speech, uh, you know, the so-called Iron Triangle speech that I cite in the book, where he talks about this new nexus that had formed between state corruption, organized crime, you know, in the sense of mafia crime, and uh, corporate corruption, you know, basically white-collar crime, and how all of these have blended, and they've led to new transnational alliances that we've never seen before. And so the entire face of organized crime is different. Organized crime now looks like the kind of guys who work on Wall Street or who inhabit your government. And that is exactly what I was seeing in the Trump administration, especially with people like Paul Manafort or Roger Stone. And so I was like, all right, if there's a guy uh, who's going to set things right and expose this whole operation and its roots, which go all the way back to the 80s, it's going to be Mueller. Um, when Barr was appointed... That's when I had pause because Barr, of course, is associated with Iran-Contra. He was the Iran-Contra cleanup guy uh, for George H.W. Bush. He was such an asshole that like William Sapphire, like ultra conservative William Sapphire, wrote scathing editorials about him and was like, this guy's too corrupt, like even for us, even for the Republicans, like this, this guy's nuts. You got to get rid of Bill Barr. And so Trump picks him, or I don't even think Trump did. I think Trump's Republican backers are much more savvy, picked him. Uh, and then it comes out that you know, Mueller and Barr have had this very close relationship for decades that Mueller, you know, served as his assistant during this time of cover-ups. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, Mueller will force Barr to tell the truth. And I mostly saw it as, wait a second, no, no, Mueller, you know, I, I had had frustrations with the probe before Barr was appointed because of just obvious things, the refusal to, uh, you know, uh, to interview Kushner, to interview Ivanka, to interview Trump, um, to make sure that Manafort and Flynn weren't going to flee to force prison sentences. I mean, they're, they're, you know, I describe all this in the book, my many, many frustrations with the probe. But the bar thing cemented it. And I do think that a kind of propaganda 
movement was put out uh, to make people believe that Mueller was really going to save this country. And it, it instilled a kind of passivity and a helplessness. And, you know, I, I understand why people felt that way, because it really was frightening. And you were hearing it from so many different places, like everyone was beating that same Mueller drum. And if you dared to kind of critique him, which I know firsthand, you know, you would I, I was threatened for that, you know, not just harassed, but like actually threatened. And I don't know what happened to him. I, I suspect Mueller was also threatened because everybody involved in this gets threatened at some point. And, you know, when you go after the Russian mafia, that's what tends to happen to you. But it is profoundly disappointing. Uh, and people really should have learned from that not to put their eggs in one basket. But instead, they replicated that same savior syndrome. They just shifted it. They shifted it to Pelosi and impeachment. They shifted it to SDNY and saying, oh, Mueller farmed out the cases and they're going to be investigated. And they're not. You know, and now, of course, we're dealing with the plague, so that's going to put a damper on things. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a sad it's a sad lesson and, you know, a sad legacy for him. But I keep thinking of Bill Barr. And when he was asked about his own legacy, he just very casually said, yeah, everybody dies. And there's a part of me that's like, well, I can relate to that because I'm not doing anything for my legacy. Like, I don't give a shit. You know, I don't care about my reputation. If I did, I'd obviously do other things and, you know, try to, to kiss ass a little bit more. But the way he said it was with such a fatalism. And Giuliani and Trump, you know, they, they say that, too, with the same fatalism. And I'm not saying they knew this uh, plague was coming, but I think that they've had a very apocalyptic view of the world, um, you know, a, a loveless and cruel view. And so... You know, I, I do wonder where Mueller fits into that broader agenda and whether he just decided to quietly accept it. Yeah, I mean, I've been reading some stuff online and like, you know, I, I'm, I'm no longer on Twitter, but I sometimes read Twitter. Uh, like I, I call it deep Twitter where you're just scanning and it's like, who is this person? But this sort of sounds like there might be something interesting here. And one of the things um, that I would actually ask you about is this idea of Trump potentially being um, a longtime informant for the FBI, you know, in situations in the past where he might have had criminal exposure and might have been in cahoots with uh, various mafiosos or, you know, mafia organizations, whether they're Italian or Russian or whatever. Um, like maybe he flipped and maybe he had some sort of deal with uh, federal law enforcement that might have you know, gummed up the works in terms of investigating him now? Like, I, I don't even know. I don't know enough about all that stuff to uh, understand it fully. But have you come across anything like that? Is that any part of the... Oh, sure. I mean, everyone everyone that investigates this at all, the, you know, FBI, Trump, Russia relationship, you know, has come across that. I mean, I think there's probably something to it, especially in terms of the 80s and 90s. I think it's it's likely that he was an informant. What I'm, you know, and, and that there are various trade-offs in terms of not investigating Trump's own criminal activity, like with his casinos, with his hotels, and so forth. I think Giuliani especially played a key role in that. Where this theory really breaks down, however, is that a lot of people are using it to try to exonerate the FBI and other law enforcement bodies that are supposed to protect us, from example, uh, I mean, for example, from a Kremlin asset becoming the president of the United States, which I'm sorry, there is no trade-off uh, that's worth that. There's no trade-off that's worth what we're going through now, where you're going to have hundreds and thousands of people die that, you know, per perhaps
perhaps would not have had we had a different president. So you have to sort of say, well, really, what were they trying to accomplish if this is all just some big long game to take down the Russian mafia or to take down um, Semyon Mogilevich, you know, who I mentioned multiple times uh, in this book and who was, of course, the subject of that Mueller speech from 2011. You know, we see so much corruption within the FBI and within FBI heads who left the agency, you know, who then went on to work for the Russian mafia, like Louis Free or William Sessions. And so I think sometimes people who are, you know, defenders of law enforcement bodies like to posit this theory as, oh, well, there has to be a good moral reason why the FBI so spectacularly botched this and seems to be protecting Trump. It must be for some greater good. And they'll bring up like Whitey Bulger or other criminals that they made these sorts of arrangements with. And I'm like, Whitey Bulger is not the president of the United States. He's not working for a foreign country. He's not building an entire administration that are affecting people's lives. So no, this isn't the kind of thing you screw around with. And that explanation just does not fly. But I'm definitely seeing it from the exact same people who kept saying, oh, Mueller is coming or SDNY's got a handle on it. And who would get very angry and very defensive uh, if you dare question any of this. But I look at it in terms of principle. You know, I look at it in terms of like, well, how has the public been affected by this? And I look at it as we are losing our country. We're losing our democracy, our freedom, our basic rights and resources are all on the line. There's nothing worth sacrificing that for. You know, if you're trying to bring down organized crime, ostensibly the reason for doing that is to protect the people. So have you protected the people? No. You know, you've made this situation abundantly worse. And that includes Comey, Mueller, you know, any of these guys who let Trump off the hook, refused to speak out when it was necessary. Uh, it's, it's unforgivable. And, you know, they dug our graves while digging their own. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about those guys like Comey and Mueller, and then you also have to ask yourself, well, if there is a stack of, um, you know, files at the FBI that deal with Trump's uh, affiliation with organized crime and his work as a confidential informant or somebody who's flipped and turned state's evidence. Like, wouldn't President Obama have had access to that kind of material with, you know, being the president of the United States and having a super high level security clearance? Like, if if this is indeed the case and if Trump's long running affiliation with organized crime is kind of a well-known secret uh, among people in the government and especially at the highest levels, then what the hell were they doing in 2016? Like, why was this information not shared with the public? Oh, exactly. You know, I, I've wondered that, too. And I wondered it back in 2016 when he was running. You know, I was in a panic, especially once he hired Manafort, because I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is just Russian organized crime. This is transnational organized crime and a link to global kleptocracies. Like, how in the world can the Obama administration be so cavalier, you know, and the FBI and others uh, as well? You know, there is no attempt to express that to the public in a clear, direct and urgent way, which there needed to be, you know, I was able to learn about this from public domain resources, from writers like Wayne Barrett or David K. Johnston, who who had covered Trump for a long time, uh, from back issues of Spy Magazine. A lot of these materials that I found then have now been pulled off the internet. And in my own book, I describe, you know, these writers that had covered Trump, uh, you know, especially during his more overtly mobbed up days of the 80s and 90s. 
and in their desperate attempt to tell their story throughout 2016. And they were just banned. They were banned from television. They were banned from uh, newspapers. You know, they were kind of left to, you know, one guy republished his own book on Kindle just so people could get it, just so people could have access to the information. So yeah, if this was all out there and I could find out while sitting in my bedroom in Missouri, obviously the Obama administration knew. They've known throughout his entire, uh, you know, tenure through Trump's entire tenure in office. They haven't really spoken out. You know, they've condemned his terrible policies and they should, but they haven't given that full background. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for it. You know, one is probably personal threats because, again, everyone's personally threatened. Another one that I've wondered about um, is the possibility of an external threat. Like, what could be worse than having Trump as the president, you know, and obviously some down, sometime down the road bringing imminent, you know, bringing about disaster to the United States. The only thing in 2016 that I could think of was worse than a long-term threat was an imminent threat. So I wondered about things like the grid. You know, there have been a lot of, uh, you know, books and articles about how Russia attacked Ukraine's grid. There were a lot of articles about how Russia had infiltrated the U.S. grid. And later we found out that they had infiltrated the Treasury in 2015. BuzzFeed did a series of exposés about that, which I think are very important and really aren't discussed. So Russia had, you know, they had hacked at this point the State Department, the DOD, the DNC, the RNC, and people kept acting like it was no big deal. And I found all of that abundantly strange. And that brings me to like the third conclusion, which is some level of internal complicity. And we know that there was some, we know there was some in the treasury. Uh, it certainly seems there are some in the New York FBI, but I mean, the only way that we can solve this is to tell people what happened. And I feel like, uh, you know, these elites in powerful positions, they get so precious about their institutional reputation. You know, it's all about like the institution and protect our institutions instead of protecting the people. But the people are who really need the protection. That's why the institutions exist. And they got so caught up in prestige and reputation that they just wouldn't tell the truth. I think that that's probably what happened with that administration, but I'm still waiting to hear from them and not just them, you know, the, the George W. Bush administration too, and every administration that preceded this. Like when Mueller finally indicted Manafort, it was for crimes he committed in 2002. I'm like, you know, where were the, the Republican administrations then? Where was Bush? Where were all these others? Like they were letting Manafort work within that party, knowing he was a criminal hooked up with international oligarchs. You know, they just called it lobbying. And so, yeah, a lot of people need to uh, be held accountable. Yeah. I mean, one of the politicians, I mean, just to try to, you know, find a little bit of a silver lining uh, or, or at least one person who might have had some moral sense is Harry Reid, the former Senate Majority Leader from the Democratic Party, who I think you mentioned in your, um, I don't know if it was in your first book or if it was another work that you've done online, but I know certainly he gets some time in hiding in plain sight. As somebody who was trying to sound the alarm about Russian interference in the 2016 election, but who was mostly ignored, correct? Yes. And, you know, when he issued his statement, he issued two statements, both open letters to James Comey, begging him to tell the American public that their election was at risk and that Russia would possibly falsify official results, which is an incredible statement to come from a Senate majority leader. And, you know, I was very concerned about Trump and Russia uh, before he released his first statement, which I believe was in August of 2016, you know, in part because Trump was on TV saying, you know, hey, Russia, if 
if you get Hillary's emails, the media will reward you. And I was like, Jesus Christ, like how much more blatant does this need to get? Like this guy is obviously a Kremlin asset. And yes, it sounds insane. It sounds like a Tom Glancy novel, but it's what's happening in front of our eyes. So let's deal with it. And so Harry Reid puts out this letter and I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, I was right. Like he would never say this unless this was very serious because this is quite an accusation. And the media absolutely buried it. You know, they gave him a little bit of time. But I've noticed even when they interview Reed now, um, and of course he's out of the spotlight, like he has, he has cancer, but he does occasionally give interviews. They never talk about that. They never talk about those letters to Comey. Uh, they've never asked Comey about the letters from Reed. And I'm grateful to Harry Reed that he did this in real time because I feel like real time documentation is one of the most invaluable things we have right now because there's such an attempt by the Trump administration and by others to rewrite history and to pretend we didn't know things when we did and pretend that things that you know were said were never said or vice versa. And here was Harry Reid, you know, documenting it in public view and doing his job as a senator. Like if everyone had acted like that, we might have been in a better place. Um, but you know, Hillary Clinton did. She did her job. You know, she informed the public. During debates, she took a lot of crap for it. People calling her a crazy conspiracy conspiracy theorist when she called, you know, Trump a Putin puppet and so on and so forth. But uh, she and her campaign were using the spotlight to try to inform the American people of things that, quite frankly, the Obama administration should have been informing them of in a clear, direct, and urgent way. Um, and it's it's just incredibly disappointing that they would allow that level of risk uh, to go on. I want to ask you about the media. You know, you've mentioned the New York Times uh, as one particular, um, you know, mainstream media organization that in many cases has failed to do its job um, or has even, you know, there have been instances like I think back to what was it in October of 2016, where, you know, the FBI sees no clear link between Trump and Russia. It almost like, you know, it's blatant cover up on the front page of the New York Times. And, you know, that's just one example. But you talk about something like Harry Reid's letters, where he's begging Comey to share this information with the American people. He's sounding the alarm about interference and possible meddling with uh, election results. And nobody on CNN or whoever it is that has access to Harry Reid and his failing health uh, and in his post-governmental life has the wherewithal to ask him about this. Like, what is going on in these big media organizations? Like, do you have, is it just money? Like, there's just money and corruption infecting those places too? I mean, I don't want to, like, it starts to make me feel crazy. I'm like, is every single corner of power in every industry just a shit show of corruption? <laughs> that I've wondered the same. I don't think it's about money because the thing is, all of this is like a ratings bonanza. You've got like the mafia, sexual assaults, bribery, threats. You know, it's very dramatic. You have a big, colorful, charismatic character with Trump. So all of these stories that they buried, everything from Trump being a Kremlin asset to Jeffrey Epstein, uh, to all of the crimes and the links to organized crimes that that Trump and his cohort had, those would have been monster stories if they were pursued in the way that, you know, such tabloid tales are normally pursued. Instead, they were buried. And we have some knowledge about the way that they do this. You know, we watched how the Inquirer would do Catch and Kill. And Ronan Farrow, um, you know, wrote a book about this and has covered this as well. So yes, there is an entire architecture to this. It is deliberate. They are the same people popping up again and again. You see someone like Jeff Zucker, who helped produce The Apprentice 
Prentice covering up for Trump and boosting his campaign throughout uh, 2016. You know, he has a framed Trump tweet on the wall. And I talk about this a bit in the book about this system of, you know, personal kind of bribery and favor trading, but also blackmail. Trump and his goon squad have been collecting dirt on all of these media figures for decades. And in the last few years from Me Too and from, you know, other kind of movements, we've realized just how horrible and how disgusting these people are. And they had quite a lot of secrets to bury. And so I'm guessing that, you know, that kind of weaponry was always at their disposal. But yeah, the kind of uniform lack of curiosity curiosity. Um, and, and at this point, it's so predictable. You know, I'll bring up certain things on Twitter and I can tell by the reaction by the bot farms that get unleashed combined with a kind of mainstream media dismissal that I'm on to something, you know, whether it was Trump being a Kremlin asset or the Mueller probe actually failing. And, you know, nowadays I'm kind of just inquiring about Trump's, you know, 30 year documented history of germophobia suddenly turning around the minute an actual uh, deadly virus that that especially affects men over 70 comes into play, suddenly he's out shaking everyone's hand. I'm just curious about that. I don't have an answer. But if I bring it up, I get, I mean, I can show you it's it's hundreds and hundreds of identical responses just trying to stop, you know, any kind of, um, you know, questioning. And I think a lot of folks, uh, they get nervous when that happens to them. You know, they get nervous if they're being attacked on that kind of level. And I understand that, you know, it's not easy to deal with. I just have to kind of shrug it off and move on. Um, But it is frustrating because I feel like, you know, well, if I'm not asking these things, like who's gonna? And I honestly would prefer if we had like intelligence agencies or Congress or others who were paid to do this job to actually do it because it shouldn't just be Harry Reid all out by himself. It shouldn't be like Elizabeth Warren. Uh, You know, when it came to Giuliani, she was kind of out by herself for a while. Like, I don't know why they can't collaboratively uh, try to bring this administration down because these guys confess their crimes. I mean, that's one of the reasons the book is called Hiding in Plain Sight. It's like they they confess it and people refuse to believe that it's as bad as it seems, in part because it is out in plain sight. And they think, well, no one would actually admit to these things. It must be a joke. It must be an exaggeration. It's like it's no joke. It's no exaggeration. These are now the people uh, who have gained control of our lives. And that's a terrible thing. You know, that's a thing that we should be adamantly fighting against. Uh, There's just such a level of cowardice. I want to ask you about uh, Jeffrey Epstein. You mentioned him just a second ago, uh, and he is a big piece of this puzzle uh, who continues to be shrouded in mystery and in some ways probably forever will be because of his mysterious, uh, you know, death in prison. I, I guess, you know, they're calling it a suicide, but I certainly have questions about that. I imagine you do, too. Uh, but just his web of connect of connections, uh, you know, all the different powerful people, powerful men uh, in particular with whom he was associated, including, um, you know, Bill Clinton, um, like who else went down to, you know, his eye. Prince Andrew, yeah. I heard Barack, yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> just like it's like a who's who. Um, so, I, you know, I, I guess like, you know, trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, is something that I feel like should be done with some urgency. Like, what what has happened to that, and why is uh, and why am I totally blanking on her name? Who is his Jeffrey Epstein's uh... Jelaine Maxwell? Yeah, why is uh, Jelaine Maxwell? W- where is she? How is she not being brought in for questioning? How has she not been arrested? Like, there's just been a complete silence in that department, and it's 
astonishing to me. Yeah, no, those are those are great questions. And you know, when I was writing this book, as I said, I wrote it over the first half of 2019. And you know, my editor and some others who read it early on could not understand like why why was Epstein so important? It's like, yes, of course, there's a link to Trump because Trump was accused of raping a 13 year old girl procured by Epstein and Maxwell. Um, you know, but I saw him as a much more central figure to this transnational crime syndicate. And of course, when he was arrested and then uh, subsequently, you know, allegedly committed suicide, um, I don't buy that either. N- none of the people at, at Flatiron had any questions anymore about why I had devoted um, such a large part of that chapter to him. But yeah, he is central to this. And there is so much timidity to covering him. And we know why to some extent, you know, again, it comes back to the fact that they threaten everyone and blackmail everyone and you know he's very intimately linked to these circles of power and so is Jelaine Maxwell and so is her father Max, uh, Robert Maxwell who is a UK publishing tycoon and also a Mossad agent uh, who was connected to the Soviet Union at the time in the late 80s and to the fledgling Russian mafia operation of Semyon Mogilevich and so all of this, you know, that these lines between crime and kind of our most esteemed, polished, prestigious institutions is very thin. And I think that uh, Epstein and Maxwell exert an enormous influence over all of these political and, um, you know, uh, entertainment and uh, other sorts of figures, you know, figures that, that bear great influence on the average person's life. And it's largely an untold story. It really wasn't until um, Julie K. Brown at the Miami Herald began, you know, issuing these exposés that law enforcement moved it all to go after Epstein. Yeah, I also describe in the book how even though Epstein was, um, you know, arrested and technically jailed, although it was quite luxurious uh, in the late 2000s and, you know, got out around, I don't know, 2010, 2011, he was welcomed back into elite society. You know, people held parties for him and they brought their children knowing full well that he was a child trafficker, that he was a child rapist. And so I look at these people, these wealthy New Yorkers, and I'm just like, what kind of values do you have? Like, what is wrong with you? And that's just how they roll. And they're like that with so many other with Harvey Weinstein, you know, with Dershowitz, with Harvard as an institution. Like, it, it's so grotesque. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it, I think that some of what happened is that the types of people who started working in these industries of journalism and politics and so forth, as we've said before, were products of nepotistic dynasties. And so maybe they either think this is normal or somebody in their social circle is caught up in it. If that's the case, it's a lot easier for people like Trump and his little goon squad of, you know, Michael Cohen's and Michael Cohen wannabes uh, to control it because the the circle is tight. You know, it it doesn't uh, include interlopers so much, but yeah, it's it's a giant untold story. I have no idea if it will ever come out. And I'm also curious about Mueller's role, because, of course, he was head of the FBI when all of this was happening, when Epstein was getting basically a free pass or some sort of agreement. Um, Alex Acosta, you know, former labor secretary, said that Epstein worked for intelligence, never specified which country's intelligence. So that question is up in the air. And it kind of uh, it, it blows my mind that people don't talk about this all the time. I mean, this should be like a 
O.J. Simpson level sort of uh, discussion topic. And I know it's, you know, it's a revolting topic. It's a, a painful and terrible one. It's about child rape and child abuse and trafficking. But my God, like what a story. And for it to just be ignored for so long. And then, you know, there was a little flurry of coverage after he was arrested and after he died. And then, like you said, it, it vanished yet again. And I know that we're all dealing with all sorts of things, you know, impeachment, a plague, the collapse of the global economy. But I think this guy's central, quite honestly, to at least two of those three things. So, uh, you know, folks should be bringing him uh, back in a serious way, not in this sort of campy, meme-ridden way, because they're real victims victims here. And, you know, I hope people don't lose sight of that. Well, um, you know, before I let you go, I do want to talk about the future and what we have in front of us, uh, both in the near term and I guess uh, to a bit of a lesser extent, the, the longer term. I, I want to ask you about Joe Biden. Uh, I know you supported uh, Elizabeth Warren in the primary. I was a fan of Warren as well. Um, but now it looks like Biden is going to be the candidate. It's definitely an unconventional campaign season with coronavirus. There's not going to be rallies. There might not be conventions, you know, in the traditional sense. So it's going to definitely require some uh, out-of-the-box thinking in terms of how one builds a campaign and generates interest and enthusiasm and the kinds of campaign donations that one, I guess, needs in the modern age to compete for the presidency. Like, how do you see it going? I know a lot of people who very much want Joe Biden to win because we want to get rid of Trump feel a lot of nervousness about his candidacy. Other people, I guess, are, are bullish. But like, where do you fall? I mean, I'm very nervous about his candidacy, and I'm also nervous that there either won't be an election or to you know, go back to my original fears about the election, that it'll be hijacked through a combination of domestic voter suppression, foreign interference, uh, and hacking machines. But Biden, you know, he, he's a weak candidate for a tough time. You know, this is not the cream of the crop. Uh, we definitely had better options. I do think Warren was the best option. Even now, you know, Biden has been somewhat slow in realizing the desperation that people feel in terms of things like health care. You know, of course, he's in favor of uh, free health care to cover coronavirus, but when it's extended to other illnesses, he doesn't seem to get that people feel that same desperation. And I don't think it's necessarily because he's evil or anything like that. I think he just doesn't get it. He's like a, an older guy who's very set in his ways. Um, and because of that, I think the best option for him and for the Democrats in general is to run the Biden campaign as a coalition campaign to kind of announce the VP and even potentially cabinet positions in advance and to have other people out there, especially the more progressive wing of the party, like the you know Bernie, Warren, AOC-type wing, bringing their input and their ideas in so that we know we're not going back uh, into the painful normal that preceded Trump. Because, like, yes, was that better than Trump? Of course, but it was still very difficult and painful. And honestly, I have questions about Biden being present, you know, as we discussed before, for all of the uh, hostile internal takeovers by Russia that happened unimpeded, you know, while he was sitting there in the VP seat. No one has asked him about that, which I also find strange. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I definitely encourage people to vote for him anyway, for the obvious reason that you vote against an existential apocalyptic threat and to vote down ballot, um, you know, for the Democrats, because that's important too. You know, it's important to try to, you know, keep Congress as strong as possible, the House and the Senate. 
But honestly, I mean, we're in the thick of the coronavirus crisis. Like we haven't peaked yet. And so everything is very difficult um, to predict. So at this point, my main request is that people get voting by mail or some sort of backup plan for November in place now so that we're not discussing this in a panicked kind of forum in October. Like you don't want your October surprise to be there's not an election. And that's what I'm worried is coming around the bend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a th- something that's that bears repeating is that people should wherever you live, look into your state's uh, procedures for making sure that you can vote by mail, that you get a ballot in the mail. If it's not going to be mandated by the federal government due to coronavirus, then you have to take matters into your own hands and make sure that you can vote by mail. So um, if you're listening and you haven't done that, do that. Um, Do you have a a sense of who would be the best running mate for Joe Biden or who you think it will be? I mean, I think he'll probably pick Kamala Harris. That's what it just seems to lead to based on what they've said in public. Um, You know, and and that would be pretty good. You know, I I think whatever they do, I think they need to get Warren in that administration, like as the treasurer or as a chief advisor, because she's the only one who has this profound grasp on the level of corruption uh, that has taken place and how so many different things intersect, you know, state corruption and corporate corruption. And I think she's got a real handle on the Trump administration. And there is really no one else that I would say that about. So I don't know. I I feel like she's a genuine public servant. It's not about the title or whatnot. And hopefully she would just be willing to advise. I think there are a number of other good Democrats. Like I liked Julian Castro, too, um, you know, who who could be useful to a a Biden cabinet. Um, I do think that Sanders should have some kind of major role, uh, you know, because he does have a following and he was at the forefront of a lot of, uh, you know, what are now very mainstream ideas about uh, economic injustice and how to remedy that. Um, sometimes I want him as like Senate majority leader because I feel like he'd be kind of like the Democrats McConnell. Like he's not going to take shit. He's not going to back down. That could be a good quality. Um, but they need to see themselves, you know, in unity. And like, I, I cannot believe that in the midst of a plague and rising autocracy that people on Twitter are still getting into little bitchy fights about the primary and not even just this primary, but like the 2016 primary. I'm like, just, you know, I don't want to say kill me because coronavirus is coming, um, but you know, <laughs> re- relieve me, relieve me of this fate. Like I, I cannot watch this anymore. It's been four years and it's like driving me out of my mind. It's like prioritize people. Like we're literally, our lives are on the line. It's an existential crisis. You're not going to like each other. You're not all going to agree, but you've got to just work together in some kind of capacity for the future of our kids, for the next generation. Like they're owed a lot more than that. So I would hope people put that in the forefront front of their minds. Do you think that if we have a reasonably free and fair election in in 2020 that Joe Biden will prevail? Yeah, I think he would win. I basically have thought that any Democrat would beat Trump because, like I said, I think that his approval is over uh, inflated. You know, this is all changing because of, you know, coronavirus. There's usually a big uptick in support for a president during a time of crisis. That hasn't exactly been happening for him. I mean, his approval went up a little, but I think this just because people are terrified. What I'm most worried about and have always been most worried about is that there just won't be a free and fair election. And if this ends up being our very first vote by mail election and Trump loses, he will, of course, contest it constantly. And even if, you know, even if it's super clear that Biden 
uh, one, he's still going to just refuse to leave because if he leaves, then he's probably going to be subject to prosecution. And another fear I have, of course, is that Biden uh, is too much of a wuss to actually prosecute Trump and his criminal cohort. And it's just going to be a repeat of the mistakes that we've made for the last 40 years with Watergate, Iran-Contra, the war in Iraq, the financial crisis, where everyone is like, oh, that would cause too much trouble, too much disruption, bygones be bygones, let's let these guys off the hook. And then all that happens is that those guys show up in future Republican administrations and they commit the exact same crimes again and again. And then everyone's like shocked, like, gee, why do they think they'll get away with this? I'm like, I don't know, because they've gotten away with it for like three decades. I mean, for like my literal <laughs> life, like that might be a reason. And so, you know, whoever comes in, that's why I want Warren, because I feel like she just doesn't care. Like she she will actually enforce accountability and she's not going to be the president. Um, I hope she's there to, you know, sort of keep people on the right track and not give into this whole Biden illusion of bipartisanship. Like you can't work with people like Mitch McConnell. I mean, maybe there are some quiet, intimidated Republicans that will come out of their shell once Trump is gone and, and act as, you know, semi-human people, kind of the way Justin Amash did before he, you know, out and out quit the Republican Party. But the current crop, I mean, you can't work with them. They're working for one, a foreign country. They're working for a criminal regime. Uh, their own campaigns are tainted by the infusion of mafia money, uh, often through proxies like the NRA. They, they cannot be dealt with. They just have to be ousted. That's the only thing that they could do. And I'm not sure that Biden grasps that, unfortunately. Well, you know, prior to getting on the uh, line with you to interview you, I was prepping for the interview and I got an unusual sense of panic because I read your book. Uh, I finished it, I want to say, what, two weeks ago and really enjoyed it. And then I was flipping back through it to prep and I was kind of like scribbling down a few thoughts and notes. And the reason that I had this panic is just that there is so much to unpack when it comes to Trump, the corruption of the Republican Party, um, all of the socioeconomic um, troubles that we have been through and continue to go through, the breakdown of institutions. I mean, I, the list could go on. And one of the things that I've been saying uh, repeatedly throughout the past few years is that, uh, you know, kind of like Riley or um, what's the what's the word to describe it? You know, sort of like gallows humor where I'm like, God, I just can't wait for like the 20 part Netflix documentary that's just going to explain this all. <laughs> and here's the thing, Sarah, like, I'm now up to like 50 part. Oh, yeah. Like this is such a big story. It is an incredibly unwieldy, incredibly complex, decades long saga of criminality and corruption and, um, you know, erosion of government institutions and norms and all of it. And I'm leading up to a compliment because... Your book is not a doorstop. I don't know how many pages it is. Uh, you know, it's probably about 250. I'm looking yeah, at it. Yeah, something not, like I'm that. Even... A lot of it's notes, so, but yeah. Probably 200 of text. Yeah, so, but, which is, you know, I think about 50,000 words. And um, in 200 pages, you have managed, I think, to about as well as anyone could hope to synthesize, you know, American history starting in the 1980s and leading up to today and trying to lay out the framework for how Trump happened and how America has degenerated. And I think it serves as an excellent primer for people who are confused because, you know, one of the things that uh, 
I hope happens, and I'm not entirely sure if it will, but I certainly hope happens, is that all Americans or the vast majority of Americans, including people who supported Trump, who might not be red hat wearing, you know, MAGA devotees, but might be like the people you described in the earlier portion of our conversation who are just sort of fed up with all of it and might have a single issue that animates them. I hope that these people eventually come to grips with the truth of who this man is and what he's been up to throughout his life and what he's done to the country. And it's going to require uh, a book like yours and eventually like what? I, I, like now I'm hedging upwards, like a 70 part Netflix documentary, <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I'm just trying to say thank you for doing all of this work. It's a lot to dig into and to unpack and to then synthesize it and to compress it into a digestible form takes a lot of work. I know that it takes a hell of a lot of work having tried to write books before. So kudos to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that because it was it was a lot of work. And, you know, that was my goal is to make this a book that everyone can read. You know, you don't have to be a specialist. You don't have to have uh, prior knowledge. And I wanted to make sure that people didn't see this as some sort of abstract problem like a, you know, a espionage or foreign policy or law enforcement problem. You know, it's it's the problem of the American experience. It's the cards that we were unfairly dealt um, as citizens of this country. And it's a fate that nobody deserves. And so, you know, my goal is to to kind of drive that home and to uh, hopefully go, um, you know, forcing people down the road of accountability in the future. Well, I, I thank you for uh, the great conversation and, and the great read. I wish you well uh, in Missouri. Stay safe with your, with your family there. And uh, congrats on the publication of uh, Hiding in Plain Sight. Oh, thank you so much. And thanks for having me on again. All right, you guys, that's Sarah Kenzier. Her new book is called Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America. It is available from Flatiron Books. The official publication date is April 7, 2020. Hiding in Plain Sight. Go get your copy immediately. You can find Sarah Kenzier online at sarahkenzier.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Sarah Kenzier. Hiding in Plain Sight is the name of the book. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to support this program, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, if you have some feedback, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a free app. It's the official app of this podcast, and it's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. I have Chrissy Van Meter, or Chrissy Van Meter. I don't know if I'm emphasizing the wrong syllable. Chrissy Van Meter. Chrissy Van Meter. Chrissy Van Meter is my guest on Wednesday great talk with her happy sunday everybody it's another special sunday episode i figured i would uh, do another one since we're all stuck at home i read sarah's book in two sittings and if you haven't read her before i recommend it it's not always the easiest uh news to hear but it's necessary 
and she is whip smart. I hope you're hanging in there. Take good care of yourselves, you know? Read some good books, watch some good movies, hang with uh, people you care about, stay in touch with people, take care of uh, elders, and don't buy all the toilet paper. (laughs) 